Air traffic operations are slowly resuming after the FAA said an overnight computer outage grounded thousands of flights. There's said to be no evidence the outage came from a cyber attack, but the Transportation Department has been instructed to do a full investigation. It's Wednesday, January 11th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a coalition of Republican officials in New York State, including a Long Island congressman, say Representative George Santos should resign over the overwhelming lies he told voters. Also, why families experiencing homelessness in Massachusetts are turning to hospital emergency departments at historic rates. They're choosing between a bunch of really terrible options. And so I think that's how we end up becoming this kind of front door to the shelter system for people. These stories and more coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Air travelers are scrambling to reschedule flights that were among the nearly 9,000 delayed or canceled this morning when departing U.S. flights were grounded. The Federal Aviation Administration ordered a ground stop while crews worked to fix a computer safety system that's used to flag potential hazards before takeoff. Tim Campbell, who advises aviation industry executives, explains why the FAA took the rare step of halting flights nationwide. The reason why the FAA called the ground stop uh, was because it's these NOTAMs are basically a um, the best information possible about the the airfield um, and the surrounding area. So if taxiways are closed or runways are temporarily closed or or closed for construction or any other restrictions um, that may be in place. The pilots and dispatchers um, who work hand-in-hand throughout the flight um, need to be aware of that. Campbell's been quoted saying that so much of the FAA systems are old mainframe systems that are generally reliable but are out of date. The government still has not said what caused the outage, but officials say there are no signs it was the result of a cyber attack. Calls are mounting that Russian cyber attacks in Ukraine be officially designated war crimes. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin has more. Almost a year after Russia invaded Ukraine, the flashy so-called cyber war many experts expected hasn't exactly come to pass. But that doesn't mean digital destruction hasn't been a major part of Russia's strategy. Human rights lawyers from UC Berkeley sent a formal request to the International Criminal Court in The Hague, urging it to consider Russian cyber attacks as war crimes, particularly those that caused blackouts in Kiev before the war. One of Ukraine's top cyber officials, Viktor Zhura, agrees. He cited a combined digital and shelling attack on a thermal power plant as an example of a coordinated assault against civilians. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. Republican officials in New York demand that Congressman George Santos resign and give up the House seat he won last month on Long Island. Santos faces controversy over lies he told about his history before the election and for alleged campaign finance violations. Here's NPR's Brian Mann. During an emotional news conference, Republican officials lined up to condemn Santos as a pathological liar for inventing a history of working for Wall Street banks and claiming falsely his family escaped the Holocaust, among other deceptions. Republican Congressman Anthony D'Esposito called for Santos to step down, as did Joseph Cairo Jr., the influential head of Nassau County's Republican Committee. As I said, he's disgraced the House of Representatives I am calling for his immediate resignation. Asked by reporters whether he will heed calls to step down, Santos answered, I will not. GOP leaders in Washington have been largely silent about the Santos scandal. Brian Mann, NPR News. He was elected to the House in November. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. More than 320 flights have been delayed at Logan Airport today as a result of this morning's failure of a computer system that handles the nation's air traffic safety information. All departing flights in the U.S. were grounded for several hours. The meltdown forced Boston architect Philo Castori to abandon a planned business trip to Canada. We only had, at the end, maybe three hours in uh, worth of time, so that's why we decided to cancel our own trip. I'm not going anymore. I'm going to the office and then going to go back to Toronto another day. So they're very big, big inconvenience. The Federal Aviation Administration says normal operations are gradually resuming. Logan Airport officials say passengers should check in with airlines before they head to the airport. A jury has found a former MBTA trolley driver not guilty of criminal negligence in a crash that injured about two dozen people. Owen Turner told investigators he may have fallen asleep moments before the trolley he was operating accelerated and rear-ended another train in 2021 on the Green Line. Investigators found no evidence that Turner was under the influence of drugs or alcohol that day. Boston-based gambling app DraftKings is hoping to take one step closer to taking part in the state's new sports betting program. DraftKings representatives are meeting today with regulators to field eligibility questions. The Gaming Commission will vote next week on whether to grant the company a temporary betting license. Online sports betting is on track to become legal in Massachusetts in March. And Boston Red Sox third baseman Raphael Devers says he always wanted to stay in Boston. The player and the team met with the media today to talk about Devers' 11-year, $331 million contract extension that was announced last week. Through an interpreter, Devers said he never had any doubt he would re-sign in Boston. This is the organization that has given me everything, um, so that was a factor. Um, but also, free agency isn't easy, and it's a tough process, and I just didn't want to have to go through that. Devers could have become a free agent at the end of the upcoming season. The Sox originally signed him in 2013. The 26-year-old has since been named to two All-Star teams. Tonight, the Celtics will be at the Garden to play the New Orleans Pelicans 7.30 tip-off time. Bruins have the night off. And in the forecast, lots of clouds moving in for the overnight hours. Temperatures about 30 overnight tonight. And then tomorrow, 41 for high morning rain, maybe a few snow flurries, and just plain rain during the day. 34 degrees now in Boston at 406. WBUR supporters include the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing stories to illuminate data and trends that shape the world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Things are returning to normal now, but it was chaos once again at the nation's airports this morning. A critical FAA system failed, and that failure led to a ground stop of all departing flights across the United States for several hours. The FAA got the system back online. Flights resumed around 9 o'clock Eastern, but not before the outage forced airlines to delay, if not completely cancel thousands of flights. Well, joining us from Chicago is NPR transportation correspondent David Shaper. And first of all, David, what what is this FAA system that failed? Well, this is called the NOTAM system, which stands for Notice to Air Missions. And it's what the FAA uses to notify pilots and other airline and airport operations personnel of any potential hazards they might come across that could affect a flight. So these are notifications about things that might just be out of the ordinary or somewhat abnormal, like a a certain runway being closed or a taxiway that's under repair. Or there may be like airspace closures due to military exercises in certain areas, or they may even use it to 
communicate reports of turbulence or large flocks of birds, since bird strikes can actually cause an, an, an engine failure. NOTAMs are critical safety, uh, critical pieces of information for safety that pilots need to have. And that's why when this system failed, the, the FAA instituted a complete ground stop for a good 90 minutes or so. Has it ever failed before? Well, uh, experts I've talked to say they've never seen the NOTAM system go down like this before. An impact on air travel was significant, even if it was temporary. Flights did resume rather quickly, and although airlines are still working to catch up, there are still all kinds of delays and cancellations across the country. You know, the last time there was a nationwide ground stop of departing aircraft, that was 9-11. The White House says there's no evidence that this outage was a result of a cyber attack. But President Biden told reporters today he is ordering a full investigation, and he asked Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg to report directly back to him. Mike McCormick is a former safety official at the FAA. He now teaches air traffic management at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and he says this system failure never put any flights at risk. And he notes that the FAA is investing hundreds of millions of dollars in upgrading all of its systems and building redundancies. But still, this incident does raise concerns. The surprising part to me that after this years of upgrade and investment in a next generation aviation system, how one, whatever it may be, problem caused this complete failure in the system. And there should never be a single point of failure. I should add that McCormick, as a former FAA official, says he has complete confidence in the agency's technology and the upgrades that are underway, and he says they will find out what went wrong and fix any problems that may exist. Well, that's reassuring. I'm glad he has complete confidence, but I can't be the only one thinking back to the chaos over the holidays mm -hmm. uh, between cold weather and the whole meltdown over at Southwest Airlines. It would seem to raise broader questions about the tech that is, that is supporting our nation's system of air travel. Well, certainly there are a lot of concerns about the airlines and their technology systems themselves. But when it comes to the FAA and the federal government's uh, investments in technology, there are those who say they haven't spent enough and, and done enough in recent years as, as well. Republican Sam Graves, the new chairman of the House Transportation Committee, who is a pilot himself, issued a statement saying that this incident, quote, highlights a huge vulnerability in our air transportation system, adding that the DOTs and FAA's failure to properly maintain an operate the air traffic control system is inexcusable. Senator Maria Cantwell, the Democratic chair of the Senate Commerce and Transportation Committee, says she too is concerned and will hold hearings on the issue. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg raised his own concerns today on CNN. We need to design in, in an, a field that's changing a lot and is going to be changing a lot more in the years to come. We need to design a system that does not have those kind of vulnerabilities. All right. So that's Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, uh, uh, one of many people who uh, we were hearing from as we try to make sense of what happened today with our nation's air travel. NPR's David Shaper in Chicago. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mary Louise. Last November, thousands of protesters across China gathered for peaceful and rare demonstrations against the country's strict COVID policies. The government lifted all COVID restrictions soon after. But now, the China security agencies are quick, quietly arresting people they believe organized the demonstrations. NPR's Emily Fang reports. The 26-year-old editor knew the police were coming after her, and so she recorded her last public words as a free woman. NPR managed to see the video. 
She says, I've delegated some friends to publicize this video after I disappear. When you see this video, I will have been arrested, just like some of my friends have been. She had just gotten her master's degree in history the year before and now works at a Beijing publishing press. We're keeping her anonymous and are not publishing anyone's name in the story for their safety because association with foreign media could bring them further legal trouble. Like many people of all ages across China, this editor was moved to attend vigils on behalf of the people who died, either under strict COVID lockdown conditions or who were denied health care because of COVID restrictions. We care about our society, she says in her video. We sympathize with everyone who lost their lives. This is why we came out that night. What is the purpose of your retaliation? Why are you making the lives of ordinary young people the price? Now, these young demonstrators all face an uncertain fate. When my friends were arrested in December, she says in the video, they were brought into the police station and made to sign arrest papers with a blank space for what crime they would be eventually prosecuted for. Nor did the paper specify where and when they were arrested. She herself was arrested on Christmas Eve. Among eight people NPR was able to confirm were detained or arrested starting in late December, in the weeks after the demonstrations. Most of them are young journalists and writers, many of them friends with each other. Here's one of their friends. Among the first to be arrested was a freelance art journalist. After being interrogated and released a few times, she was panicking. She finally disappeared in December. There's also a young, dynamic Beijing journalist. She never had radical political views. She loves literature, went to films and book clubs, and is a big fan of Chizuko Ueno, a very popular Japanese feminist scholar. The security crackdown is ongoing, and those involved could face lengthy prison times. To protect their safety, the voices you hear now are actors voicing their interviews with NPR. One of those arrested comes from an affluent family and feels guilty that other people still live in poverty and pain. So she helped find transportation for doctors and dialysis patients during the Shanghai lockdown, and remotely coordinated volunteer work in Wuhan when it was under lockdown. If even ordinary people like my friends, who peacefully participated in a vigil, can be arrested, anyone could be taken. Police tell families the arrests and others are to protect national security. And that means an extra level of secrecy, making it extremely hard to even confirm more people who have been arrested. NPR reached out to the police departments who made the arrests, but they did not respond. The relatives of one of those arrested explains how police are careful not to leave a paper trail. As soon as I signed her arrest papers, the police took them away from me. Family and friends of those arrested say some of them have been charged with disrupting social order. They fear they may be further accused of colluding with foreign countries like the U.S. to plan the protests in November, a theory some Chinese officials have proposed. Many of those arrested are women. The police need a theory to explain away the protests, and they're trying to find an organizer to blame. Now their working theory seems to be that a group of feminists influenced by Western ideas organized the demonstrations. This is something protesters explicitly denied to NPR. They emphasized the November protests and vigils were merely to express how frustrated they were by nearly three years of China's zero-COVID policy that had left people literally starving or trapped in their own homes and destroyed the economy. Now those zero-COVID rules have been lifted, but some of those who spoke out against them 
face prison. Emily Fang, NPR News. Compared to, say, a thunderous dunk. Or a last-second three-point shot from way far out. Curry, way down to The free throw is a pretty unglamorous part of basketball, but every old school coach will scream about just how important it is to sink those uncontested shots you get after being fouled. And everyone who just loves the fundamentals of basketball had their dreams come true last night in Miami. The Oklahoma City Thunder were in town, and the game was not historic at first. But Oklahoma City kept fouling, and Miami kept making foul shots. Butler is a perfect 8 for 8 from the free throw line. Miami Heat star Jimmy Butler made by far the most free throws, 23 in all. But every foul shot that everyone on the team took, they went in. And the announcers began to take notice. See, tonight, the Heat with 28 consecutive free throws made. Their franchise record is 30. They got to finish the game perfect. As the game wound down the heat, inch closer to history. And Miami back at the line, having made 37 consecutive free throws with a minute 47 left, approaching an NBA record. And Butler calmly cashes another one in. So there's just seconds left in the game. The Heat had tied the NBA record, 39 free throws without a miss. With the Heat down two, Jimmy Butler made a shot to tie the game and in the process was fouled again. That earned him a single free throw with not only the game, but the NBA record on the line. Record set in 1982. And Butler makes it. A perfect 40 for 40. That's a new league record. And more importantly to them, the Heat also took the lead and soon thereafter the win. And we have to assume earned a day off from practicing their free throws. You're listening to All Things Considered. And this is 90.9 WBUR on Wall Street. An upsweep today. The Dow rose eight-tenths of a percent, 269 points, to finish the day at 33,973. S&P picked up more than one and a quarter percent to close at 39.70. The Nasdaq notched its fourth day of gains, rising about one and three quarters percent to finish at 10,932. A China-based airline is aiming to reopen routes between Logan Airport and two major Chinese air hubs. Hainan Airlines has filed paperwork with American transportation officials to restart flights from Boston to Beijing and Shanghai and stopped those flights during the pandemic. The company declined questions from the Boston Business Journal about the plan. China's airports are reopening to international travel as the country lifts strict rules aimed at stopping the spread of COVID. Business news comes up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Titus Kafar's Jerome Project, Portraits on Race, Representation, and Mass Incarceration, GardnerMuseum.org. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. 
Cloudy skies for the remainder of the afternoon and evening. Overnight tonight should be cloudy and dry. Temperatures right about 30 degrees overnight. And then tomorrow, some snow flurries early, some rain as well. Mostly just a mess of clouds through the day. Temperatures about 41 degrees. Friday, some early morning rain, then clouds, strong winds, but warm ones at least, about 56 for a high. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Massachusetts, pediatric emergency rooms are seeing a fair number of patients who do not actually need medical care. As Gabriella Emanuel of member station WBUR reports, families experiencing homelessness are turning to ERs for shelter in record numbers. At Boston Medical Center, Oscar confided in an ER doctor that she and her eight-year-old son had nowhere to live. She says the situation was really stressful. They just arrived in Massachusetts after a five-year journey from Haiti. We're using her middle name because her family was a target of violence there. Hospital staff sent Oscar and her son to a field office for the state-run family shelter system. But by the end of the day, they still had nowhere to go. She says a state employee called an Uber and sent them back to the hospital in pouring rain to spend the night there. Melissa Dean from Boston Children's Hospital says many families tell her similar stories. They say they were sent by state officials, people at the airport, relatives, even strangers. This past year, her hospital saw about 550 families in the ER whose primary concern was housing. It's massive. We have had to dedicate, I would say, close to 40 percent of our social work resources to this problem. For decades, ERs all over the country have been a place where people experiencing homelessness can go. Yet Massachusetts is in a unique situation. It's the only state that legally guarantees housing for eligible families. But as those families work through the shelter application, they sometimes have nowhere to go, except the ER. This is becoming a particular problem lately because the number of families turning to ERs has ballooned. It's because an affordable housing crisis is colliding with a spike in migration. Dean and her staff of ER social workers help parents navigate the shelter application. The process is quite complex. You know, whether or not a family's income eligible can be as tedious as looking at every little deposit it can take days to track down everything for the application. Birth certificates, housing history, bank statements. Many families stay in the ER that whole time. And since these kids don't usually have medical concerns, they wait as all the patients with health issues are seen first. Amanda Stewart, an ER doctor at Boston Children's, says pediatric hospitals are so busy right now that families in need of housing often stay in the ER waiting room all night, never getting a room or a bed. There are alarms going off 24-7. There's just lots of 
potentially scary things happening. And not to mention, of course, there's infectious diseases that we don't need to expose them to if they aren't there for medical reasons. Stewart says it all takes a toll on the family's mental health. One family stayed at Boston Children's for nearly a month. Plus, it's expensive. The Massachusetts Medicaid system usually picks up the tab, paying for each child each night. The average was $557, which at the time of when we studied it was about four and a half times the cost of a night in shelter. And so these are just completely preventable, unnecessary costs to the healthcare system. But in Massachusetts, there's not another 24-hour option for families who are newly homeless. So some end up sleeping in cars, staying outside, or going to the ER. They're choosing between a bunch of really terrible options. And so I think that's how we end up becoming this kind of front door to the shelter system for people. Massachusetts officials declined interview requests, but a spokesperson says it's not state policy to direct families to the ER. Oscar and her son got lucky. After going to the ER two nights in a row, they found temporary housing with a nonprofit while applying for the shelter system. With all their stuff packed into a few little bags, Oscar and her son get into a taxi. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> they wave goodbye to their caseworker and head to a family shelter. Oscar says she's hoping to find stability and a school for her son. They've made it through the Massachusetts family shelter system's front door. But experts estimate dozens of other children and parents are still seeking shelter in local ERs each night. For NPR News, I'm Gabriela Emanuel in Boston. Maybe the answer is because it was there. The question, why would big wave surfers paddle or get towed into the ocean on jet skis in the hopes of surfing waves that are sometimes many stories high? Well, that sport lost an icon last week. The famed Brazilian surfer Marcio Freire died towing surfing in the Portuguese town of Nazaré. An underwater canyon there that is three miles deep generates some of the biggest surfable waves in the world, including the biggest wave ever surfed at 86 feet. Though he had been surfing Nazare for years, Freire made his name in Hawaii. In the 1990s, he and a few friends from northeastern Brazil made their way to Hawaii, where big wave surfing was emerging. They didn't have any money, and they spoke almost no English. But they had a passion and intensity that earned them the name Mad Dogs. So initially, the Mad Dogs surfed without using jet skis or rescue teams, the support that made big wave surfing possible. They paddled themselves into the waves on long, heavy boards called guns. They got to crawl over those gnarly, giant, slippery boulders to almost lose their life, to get through the shore break, to get into the lineup, to paddle into these giant waves. I think it's unbelievable. That's surfer Darek Dorner from the 2016 documentary Mad Dogs, which also featured Freire himself. I didn't take anyone to film me. I just jumped in with my suit, my leash, and my gun. The Mad Dogs challenged the notion of what was possible in paddle-out surfing. Freire describes one attempt at surfing a famous Hawaiian big wave called Jaws and the power of those waves. He remembers one that dragged him under. And I couldn't hold my breath any longer. I was in agony, begging for air. 
and then everything was suddenly calm. I made it to the surface and took a deep breath. I mean, I couldn't hold it any longer. Despite being a legend in the sport, Freire says he never made a living from surfing. Absolutely not. I was never able to make a real living from surfing. I can count on my fingers money that came from surfing. Freire joined the podcast Let's Surf just a few months ago. I really don't care about chasing the big one. I've already done a lot of that in my life. I just want to keep surfing and always have the chance to catch those perfect waves. Which he did, till the very end. Marcio Freire was 47 years old. Grammy-winning icon Roberta Flack has retired from singing. She announced a devastating ALS diagnosis in November. It has taken away her ability to perform. But now she is unveiling a new way to share her art. More on Roberta Flack's new children's book, The Green Piano, tomorrow on All Things Considered. Listen on the radio or ask your smart speaker to play your NPR member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Plenty cloudy tonight, falling a few degrees to 30. Tomorrow, early morning flurries, some rain, and then clouds lasting through the day tomorrow, up around 41 degrees. Celtics will be at the Garden to play the New Orleans Pelicans tonight, 7.30 tip-off time. Bruins coach Jim Montgomery will coach his first NHL All-Star game next month. Today, the league selected Montgomery to lead the Atlantic Division team in the matchup on February 4th and Sunrise, Florida. He's led Boston to the best record in the NHL this season. The Bruins have tonight off. They are in action tomorrow night when they host the Seattle Kraken. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Whitehead Institute. Join director Ruth Lehman on January 26th in conversation with science writer Carl Zimmer. wi.mit.edu slash events. And Davis Mom, taking care of your business from startup to sale. Learn more at davismom.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. One of Wall Street's biggest banks is beginning the new year with job cuts. Goldman Sachs plans to lay off as many as 3,200 employees this week. It's a volatile business. That's kind of what you sign up for when you go to work on Wall Street. We'll ask what's behind what may be one of the biggest rounds of layoffs at the bank since 2008 on the next morning edition from NPR News. Tomorrow, starting at 5 on WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration says it's investigating the cause of a widespread computer outage that forced the FAA to temporarily suspend all flights in the U.S. today. NPR's David Shaper reports the technical failure was one of the largest in years. There is reason for concern here. Our aviation safety system is built on redundancies, so failures like this shouldn't happen. But this is a major disruption of a system that is essential for flight operations. And I should say not just for commercial airline flights, but almost all aircraft except for the military system. And it appears to be one of the most significant FAA outages in years. That's NPR's David Shaper reporting. The White House says there's no indication that the outage was the result of a cyber attack, but hasn't ruled it out. 
The World Health Organization says it's working with China in an effort to mitigate the latest surge of coronavirus cases in the country. NPR's Emily Fang reports the outbreak is expected to worsen at the end of the month because of holiday travel. The head of the WHO's coordination team says the agency is in contact with their China colleagues about developing strategies as holiday travel ramps up in China. Coming up is Lunar New Year, and this time China is predicting people will make some 2 billion trips over the next month to see family and travel. That could spread the virus even further from cities, which have been the hardest hit so far, to rural areas. However, the WHO said to develop better mitigation strategies, it needed more data from China. The WHO and public health regulators in the U.S. have been pushing China for more complete infection numbers and information on the variants spreading there. Emily Fang, NPR News. Stocks traded higher today on Wall Street. At the close, the Dow was up 268 points. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A new report finds Boston is the fourth most congested city in the world when it comes to traffic. And the head of the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce says it's more than just a transportation issue. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports. The report from traffic analytics firm Inrix finds the average Boston area commuter spends 134 hours a year in traffic. Chamber President Jim Rooney says not only is that bad for the climate, it affects the city's efforts to attract talent and businesses. The ability to get in and out of downtown or the economic activity centers, as well as the ability to move within the downtown and economic activity centers, is a deciding factor for people where they'll locate a business or where they'll work. Rooney says recent service and safety problems with the MBTA have led to more people driving into the city rather than taking public transportation. And he says mobility issues impact things like economic inequality and housing access. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Construction is starting this week on an Eversource electrical substation in East Boston that's drawn opposition. State regulators approved a special certificate that allows the utility to bypass state and local environmental permits that it was struggling to get. Opponents object to the location of the substation on the banks of the Chelsea Creek, which sometimes floods. The site is near tanks of jet fuel and across the street from a playground. They fear an explosion at the substation could be devastating, and they're appealing the granting of that special certificate. Boston University researchers say they may have discovered why the Omicron variant of the coronavirus appears to result in less severe illness. Their work is published in the journal Nature, as WBR's Deborah Becker reports. The paper says mutations in a protein in the Omicron variant appear to be why it causes less severe sickness. Professor Ron Corley, chair of BU's microbiology department, says this difference in Omicron, as well as vaccines, made people less sick. And this just simply shows that it's not only the vaccines, but it's also the virus itself that has changed. And and that we did not know before this study. Corley says the research could lead to new medicines for COVID. Federal regulators have determined that because the BU research was privately funded, the university did not violate federal research standards when it created a version of the virus that combined the original strain with Omicron. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Best Barry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bestberry.com. 
Clouds are moving in, should settle here for a couple of days. Tonight, overcast skies down around 30 degrees. Tomorrow, rain and snow flurries early. Cloudy skies to last the day, highs about 41. Friday could reach into the 50s, maybe about 56 or 57 degrees. Strong, gusty winds on Friday. Clouds linger through the day and stick around for Saturday as well. 34 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Heavy rainfall is continuing to pummel California. While most residents were sheltering from the storms, a research team from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration was flying right into one. Power set. Airspeed's alive. The NOAA Hurricane Hunters were on a mission to go into an atmospheric river. That's like a literal river of moisture in the sky, a storm that stretches hundreds hundreds of miles. From 45,000 feet up, the team released special instruments called dropsons. Now they look like a burritos with parachutes and they collect data about the storm. Three, two, one, mark, release on now. The flight can be a bumpy ride for the crew, but the info that they're gathering is helping improve storm forecasts, especially flood alerts. And it's not just about wet weather. These missions are helping California deal with dry conditions, too. NPR's Lauren Summer is here to explain how. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. So this is the paradox, I guess, for California right now, that there's all this rain and yet the state's drought is ongoing. How are these winter storm forecasts helping with the drought side of things? Yeah, that's exactly what California officials have been saying. The state is in a flood emergency and a drought emergency at the same time. And that has a lot of people asking, how can the state catch more of this flood water? How can more be stored to last of a dry season, you know, given how low reservoirs have been? And today there's a rule that's working against that in some cases, which is that reservoirs aren't allowed to be full in the winter. They actually have to empty themselves out. Huh. Why? But filling up the reservoirs would seem to be advantageous in a state that is so chronically dry. Yeah, it would be. But reservoirs actually have another job in the winter, too, which is to catch the runoff from storms so that it doesn't flood cities and towns downstream. They can't do that if they're full because the dams could be easily overwhelmed. So most reservoirs have automatic rules that say in the late fall, they have to release a certain amount of water if they're too full. A certain amount. How much water are we talking? Yeah, one example, there's a major reservoir outside of Sacramento, California, called Folsom Reservoir. The rule there said it could only be 60% full in the winter at the most. And that means sometimes the reservoir would empty itself out when it didn't really need to because no major storms arrived. So now they're trying something else, which is to dynamically manage the reservoir using weather forecasts. So the reservoir doesn't empty out preemptively. It only does if a big storm is on the way. Uh-huh. Okay. So it is the forecast that will determine what this reservoir does, which means the forecast would need to be 
very accurate because public safety is on the line. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's where those NOAA storm reconnaissance flights are coming in. They're helping fine tune those forecasts even more. And this winter really is the first time Folsom Reservoir is kind of being managed this way when there's this big stream of storms hitting. And when I spoke to the Bureau of Reclamation, which manages that reservoir, they said it's working well so far. I'm thinking through the possibilities here. With all the storms happening right now, all the rain coming, might managing reservoirs in this way, this more dynamic way, might that help California with its drought that we're expecting to continue in the coming year? It could, yeah. And, you know, especially if there's a repeat of last year where the storms just kind of dried up in January. And as the climate gets hotter, you know, this could be a pattern that California sees more of. That's what Marty Ralph, who studies reservoirs at UC San Diego Scripps Institution of Oceanography, told me. Longer droughts, deeper droughts and bigger storms between them. So we need to prepare. There's a lot at stake. And these are methods that could really help us with climate adaptation. Lauren, is this something that other states, other reservoirs across the West are looking at? Yeah, right now it's just two reservoirs working this way in California. A handful of others are studying it. And I spoke to David Raff, chief engineer for the Federal Bureau of Reclamation, about the possibilities beyond that. The climate is changing, hydrology is changing, weather patterns are changing. In addition to that, the demand for water is increasing in the Western United States. When you put those things together, there is a significant interest to optimize reservoir operations in all of our reservoirs. You know, most of our water infrastructure is designed to fit the climate of the past, and that's obviously not a good fit going forward. But there's a lot more real-time data out there today, you know, to help dynamically manage these systems as things are changing, you know, if water managers choose to use it. NPR's Lauren Summer from our Climate Desk. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thanks. Republican leaders in New York say Congressman George Santos is a pathological liar and should give up the House seat he won last month on Long Island. During an emotional news conference today, Republican officials said Santos misled them as well as the public before the election. But as NPR's Brian Mann reports, Republicans on Capitol Hill are staying silent, so far at least, about the Santos scandal. Republican George Santos won his seat after lying about almost everything from his professional career to his college education. Speaking today, the head of the Nassau County Republican Committee, Joseph Cairo Jr., said Santos spun tales to him in a private conversation about athletic victories at Baruch College. Told me, I remember specifically, that he was a star on the volleyball team and that they won the league championship. And what can I tell you? Turns out Santos never attended Baruch College. Santos also told much bigger lies, claiming he had employees who died in the Pulse nightclub shooting and inventing a story about his family escaping the Holocaust. Today, Cairo called those deceptions unforgivable and said Santos should resign immediately. He disgraced the House of Representatives, and in particular, his fabrications went too far. I look at those families that were touched by the horrors of the Holocaust and feel for them. Santos, a political newcomer, has declined NPR's repeated requests for an interview. Today in Washington, reporters confronted him in a hallway of the Capitol. The New York Republicans are calling you a disgrace. You will not resign. Before stepping onto an elevator, Santos said he has no plans to leave office. Congressman Santos, will you resign? I will not. But Republicans on Long Island say they will now cut all ties with Santos and will refuse to work with him or his office on federal issues affecting their communities. They'll also oppose his reelection if he runs again in two years. Jennifer DeSena is the Republican town supervisor in North Hempstead, New York, who endorsed Santos before the election. 
The lies George Santos told are too numerous to count. He lied to me personally, and while I'm offended and disgusted, my true concern is for the residents of the 3rd Congressional District. The Republicans raised concerns today about how Santos funded his campaign, including a $700,000 donation he made to his own election effort. It's unclear where that money came from, and at least two probes are now underway. GOP leaders, including Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman, also said they're worried about Santos's character and his mental health. He needs to get help, but until he stops deluding himself that he can continue in Congress, I want nothing to do with him. The Republican Congressman Michael D'Esposito from New York also called today for Santos to step down. But in stark contrast to today's news conference, most GOP leaders in Washington have been silent about the Santos scandal. Republicans on Long Island said they would now urge House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to take action against Santos. Cairo also took blame for not vetting Santos and his claims before helping him win. Uh, shame on me for being for believing people. So we will obviously adapt that system. Cutting ties with Santos wouldn't be easy for Republicans in Washington. If he were forced from office, it would trigger a special election in a fiercely competitive district at a time when the Republican Party's majority in the House is already fragile. Brian Mann, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. During the pandemic, lots of Americans chose not to go to college, but one group did, high schoolers. Many more are now taking college classes before they even graduate. That is good for the students and colleges. And Piers Alyssa Nadwerney has more from Birmingham, Alabama. It's bright and early at Woodlawn High School. Most students are sleepwalking from their cars into the regal brick and glass building. But a handful of students are getting on an idling school bus parked out front. You want to stop and talk and like communicate, but you got to catch the bus before me. November Bowler is among the dozen or so Woodlawn High students heading to their first class of the day on a different campus, a college campus, 20 minutes away. It's like finals day for us. It might be a little panic. November settles in behind a group of students. They're all trying to cram a semester's worth of history on index cards. My handwriting is small, so it'll be, I'll be fine. They're each allowed to have one during their final exam. Man, you're not going to be able to read all this. Several days a week, these students spend their mornings on a college campus and their afternoons back at high school in what's often called a dual enrollment program. This bus is headed to Jefferson State Community College. Going here makes um, taking the high school classes way easier. Emma Mitchell is a junior who's sitting at the back of the bus, reading over her notes for her morning sociology test. Off the bus, students find their classes on campus. And today is the final exam day. So no headphones or earbuds, with the exception of our NPR journalists. Here at Jefferson State, high school students make up a third of the student body. And there's not just a benefit to students getting to experience college early. High schoolers on campus mean a huge benefit for the college. So we get full tuition dollars for all of our dual enrollment students. Pam Kelly is a dual enrollment coordinator at Jeff State. That's a lot of revenue that, that we're not missing out on. During the pandemic, Jefferson State, like most community colleges, saw far fewer people enrolling overall. But their number of high school students kept growing. 
nationally, data shows the pandemic's steep enrollment declines at two-year colleges are flattening, almost entirely because of high school students. Pam Kelly attributes this growth to two things, the rise of online learning during COVID, if your class is online anyways, why not try a college one, and funding. In the last two years, the state of Alabama has invested millions in dual enrollment, so for many students, it's free. And it's not just Alabama. There are strong dual enrollment numbers in places like Texas and Ohio. In Iowa, high school students make up 45% of community college enrollment. Pam Kelly at Jeff State says the growth has been a cushion for the college, but it's not just about money. Numbers are important. There's no doubt about it. But to me, it's about giving students an opportunity to change their lives. After all the morning finals are over at Jeff State, I catch up with November Bowler. She doesn't think she'll come here full time after her high school graduation. She's interested in neurosurgery. I want to do biology, like biology and chemistry with lab. The general ed classes she's taken here as a high school student have given her a big confidence boost. I feel like I can handle it. Plus, November tells me if she does go on to be a doctor, that's a lot more schooling. Getting a year or two of college credits before she graduates high school, that's going to help the community college stay afloat, but it's also going to save her time and money. That was NPR's Alyssa Nadwarney reporting from Birmingham, Alabama. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, one of reggaeton's first stars talks about how fame has not been easy. That story is still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechNet.com. In the forecast, clouds have moved in, should settle here for a few days. Tonight, overcast skies down around 30, a few scattered snow flurries. Tomorrow, clouds to last the day. Rain moving in after 3 in the afternoon tomorrow. High temperatures just about 41 degrees. Rain could reach uh, Friday. No, temperatures could reach into the 50s with strong wind gusts. Rain for the first part of the day. Clouds linger through the day on Friday. Then Saturday's looking partly sunny, chilly once again. Temperatures right about 40 or just a bit below that. 33 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 449. WBUR supporters include Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Several people aboard the International Space Station learned today that their stay is being extended by several months after their spacecraft was damaged in orbit. The Russian space agency said it plans to launch an uncrewed Soyuz spacecraft next month. That capsule will replace the one that flew two cosmonauts and a NASA astronaut to the station last September. Brendan Byrne of member station WMFE in Orlando has more. 
It's been four weeks since the cosmonauts and astronauts aboard the space station were stunned to look out the windows to see something leaking from a docked Soyuz spacecraft that flew three of them to the orbiting lab last year. We are uh, still in uh, concert uh, with the Russian flight controllers outside of Moscow evaluating a stream of particles that appears to be coming from the Soyuz MS-22. That stream of particles turned out to be coolant. An investigation by the Russian space agency determined a meteoroid strike was to blame. Just like if you're in a car and a rock pops up and hits your radiator fluid and it leaks out, you can drive the car for a little while, but you don't want to drive it for too long. Retired NASA astronaut Terry Virts flew to the station in 2015 on a Soyuz capsule. He says the coolant is an important part of the vehicle. In the same way that you can fly the Soyuz for a little while, but the computers and most importantly the people inside will start to overheat pretty quickly. With no way to radiate heat, it would be an uncomfortable flight with temperatures in the capsule expected around 100 degrees. And because of that, the leaky capsule isn't safe to transport crew back home in March as scheduled. Now it will return to Earth at some point empty. So Russia is sending a new Soyuz without a crew to the station next month. We're not calling it a rescue Soyuz. NASA's Joel Montablano says at no point was the crew in immediate danger. But capsules aren't just for transporting people to and from the station. They're lifeboats in case of an emergency, like a fire or chemical leak on the station. Astronauts can take refuge in the capsule, but should they need to evacuate the station altogether? Sergei Krikalev of the Russian space agency Roscosmos believes the Soyuz could still fly in an emergency. Soyuz is not good for nominal reentry, but in case of emergency, with extra risk, we are going to use this Soyuz at this point. For that reason, the agencies are working with SpaceX to possibly use its Dock Dragon capsule should there be a need to make an escape before the new spacecraft arrives. Because of the Soyuz swap, the current crew could extend its stay to September for a full year on the ISS. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando. Here at NPR, we are leaning into the joy where we can with a series called I'm Really Into. Well, today, Invisibilia co-host Kia Miyaka Natis brings us her story of picking up a new hobby during the pandemic, roller skating. I started skating with a really humble goal. Try not to look so scared. I know that might sound easy, but it took me a while. At first, being on wheels made me look like I'd stuck my finger in an electrical socket. Just a wide open mouth terror. But... Not looking scared was something I knew I could do. And having small goals helped me stick with the painfully embarrassing, humbling, and thrilling process of trying to learn to roller skate. The pandemic brought back roller skating in a major way. At one point, there was a worldwide shortage of skates. And as it turns out, there's a lot of people like me, 35 plus, trying to figure out if they can learn something new. It's no different to me than like yoga, but people respond to it in such a strange way. Gretchen Quinn is one of those skaters. When the pandemic hit, she fell in love with online videos of roller skaters just vibing out to music. So for her 48th birthday, she bought herself her first pair of roller skates. Most nights after dinner, her five kids and husband would give her space to push away the furniture and roll around on their hardwood floors. But once she left the house, the reactions she got from others weren't quite as understanding. I have my roller skates on my shoulder and a neighbor would be like, where are you headed? I'm like, I'm going roller skating. And so they like laugh. They're like, oh, really? I bought my kid roller skates for Christmas. Would you want to roller skate with them? No, I don't. 
<laughs> no shade to the kids, of course, but I get it. Most people associate roller skating with kids' birthday parties. But skating as a grown-up, with grown-up knees, it is a different adventure. You know, I'm 43, and, like, I don't, you know, <laughs> I want to keep my knees, you know, so I was concerned with that. When Chrisella Briscoe began skating the concrete floors of her garage, she was worried. She'd already had two knee surgeries. But practicing skating quickly became worth the risk, a peaceful respite after stressful work days. Still, even with the best knees, falling down is a major part of learning to skate. I won't get better if I don't fall, you know? But for me, I just have to get myself back up, and quickly, mm -hmm. because, you know, if you stay down too long, you know, it's like, oh, Lord, you know, the fear sets in. I, too, got real familiar with picking myself up off the floor. Though my granny heckled me a little bit. Classes, we were just watching and practice in the corner. I figured some formal roller skating instruction could do me good. As I began to learn, I could jam out alone at home, but the rink was so intimidating. My knees would lock, and I was keenly aware of how different things felt on wheels. Everyone seemed to move so fast, spinning in unpredictable paces and directions. It can be overwhelming. Luckily, there are plenty of skaters there to help you orient yourself. I remember one time, a man who looked a lot like my granddad with his nickname, DW, etched into his skates, taught me to turn corners by lifting one of my legs. Like a rudder, he yelled at me over the blaring music. You could always use it. He held my hand as we skated around the rink a few times, my face stuck in an open-mouthed grin. When I'm in the zone at the rink, I'm skating the wind. My only thoughts are listening to the music and letting it move through me as I navigate the oval lanes of the skate floor. On a really good night, when the floors feel as smooth as glass and the music grooves just right, it's like we're all floating, skating to the same song, but in our own unique ways. There's an invisible web of sound and breeze carrying us all. To swim amongst it, expressing my own skate self, is extremely free. The rewards are so much greater, especially as an older person. Chris Briscoe knows the vibe. The children, when they're skating, granted, they have fun. Adults that skate, it brings so much peace because you get to experience childlike joy, you know? What started out as a quest to have something to do in the pandemic has turned into something more meaningful for both of us. I didn't expect the happiness that I received from skating because I really just wanted to learn how to skate backwards. And the peace that I have when I'm skating is something that I want to take and have forever. The other day, I joyfully skated past an older woman on the rink. She was slowly shuffling in her knee pads and wrist guards. My goal is to skate like you, she said, almost under her breath. I tried to contain my pride. Keep at it, I yelled over my shoulder. A few minutes later, I tripped, fell, and then quickly picked myself up and kept at it. That is Kia Miyaka Natis, co-host of NPR's Invisibilia podcast. And this is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. 
and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is WBUR. A few flurries around the region. Cloudy skies tonight, dipping to about 30. Tomorrow should reach about 41 for a high. Lots of clouds, some rain in the mid to late afternoon. Friday should bring rain in the first half of the day. Temperatures creeping all the way to the mid-50s. This is WBUR. Follow the news 24-7 with a WBUR mobile app. Just tap to listen while you work or work out. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Make it two major snafus in U.S. air travel in two weeks. Last month, a winter storm caused thousands of flight delays and cancellations. Today, there was an outage in the system that notifies pilots about flight hazards and broken equipment. Coming up, why the disruptions in air travel? It's Wednesday, January 11th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, since the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, many Muslim Americans have been turning to their faith to figure out what Islam says about abortion. I learned a lot about the Muslim tradition in the sense that, you know, first of all, the mother's life is the most important thing. And a pilot program out of Rhode Island finds pharmacists could play a key role in improving treatment options for people battling drug addiction. I was very gloomy. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't want to go back on drugs. Uh, and I happened to see the sign. It was a godsend. But there are barriers to making the idea a widespread reality. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Federal Aviation Administration grounded planes nationwide for several hours today because of outages in a crucial safety notification system. As NPR's Drew Massey reports, this technological failure delayed or canceled thousands of flights across the country. Every pilot relies on the Notice to Air Missions, or NOTAM, system to flag conditions that could impact flight safety. But for years, there has been talk in the aviation industry about trying to modernize the system. Tim Campbell is the former senior vice president of air operations at American Airlines. He cautions NOTAM is just one network indicative of many reliable, though out-of-date, mainframe systems. I think this speaks to the large volume of technology debt at legacy carriers because they've made the investment into these critical ops systems that are very complicated to replace. When NOTAM failed Tuesday night, operators resorted to a telephone hotline that was later overwhelmed by daytime traffic. Juma say. NPR News, Washington. The Biden administration is extending the COVID-19 public health emergency. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin says the declaration is now set to expire in April unless it is renewed again. The Trump administration first declared COVID-19 a public health emergency in January 2020. Since then, it has been renewed every 90 days. In a statement on Wednesday, Health Secretary Javier Becerra wrote that this renewal is being made, quote, after consultation with public health officials. Still, experts widely believe that this is the year the declaration will end. When that happens, there will be many changes to the healthcare system, including access to telemedicine and changes for people on Medicaid. 
HHS says it will give states 60 days of warning before the declaration is terminated or allowed to expire. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. High inflation and efforts to control it are weighing on the global economy. NPR Scott Horsley reports on the latest forecast from the World Bank. The Labor Department is set to report on consumer prices for December. Forecasters think annual inflation cooled a bit last month from the 7.1% rate in November, but prices are still climbing much faster than the Federal Reserve would like. The World Bank has cut its forecast for global economic growth this year nearly in half. The bank now expects the global economy to grow just 1.7 percent. The World Bank expects the U.S. economy to grow just half a percent this year, and it's forecasting no overall growth in Europe. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Investment bank Goldman Sachs has begun wielding the jobs-cutting acts, just the latest big Wall Street firm to do so. Just over 3,000 employees are being let go there, according to sources inside the company, as Goldman seeks to deal with an industry slowdown that has also hit other financial institutions and the tax sector. Other banks that have laid off workers include Morgan Stanley and BlackRock, which were reportedly cutting 2 to 3 percent of their staffs in HSBC. Stocks posted gains of nearly 1 percent or more today. The Dow up 268 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Pharmacies could be used to expand treatment options in the opioid crisis. That's the conclusion of a study out of Rhode Island Hospital. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports. Pharmacists working with a doctor were trained to introduce patients to medication that helps reduce cravings for opioids and then help manage the patient's care. Lead author Tracy Green says the pilot offered a new treatment option for patients. People could walk into a pharmacy or call a hotline and start medication so they could basically have on-demand care, which they'd never been able to have. Green says participants who started care in a pharmacy were 72 percent more likely to continue treatment for at least a month as compared to those seen at more traditional outpatient addiction programs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. Issues with the Massachusetts subsidy programs are leaving some lower-income families in the state unable to afford child care. That's according to a new report from the Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation, which is backed by business. It finds child care subsidies are inefficiently allocated and reimbursement rates are too low. The report suggests child care affordability issues could be partially driving the workforce shortages in the state. Governor Maura Healey is filling up her cabinet. Today, she named Lauren Jones as Secretary of Labor and Workforce Development. Jones worked for the city of Boston under former Mayor Marty Walsh and in state government in the Patrick administration. She held policy and communications roles. Healey says the state is facing a serious workforce shortage, and Jones has a record of collaborating with business and labor to expand workforce development opportunities. The new governor seeks to uh, still needs to name three more cabinet secretaries. And musicians will be able to keep using their longtime rehearsal space at the Sound Museum in Brighton at least until the end of February. That's a month longer than planned. The new timeline was announced today by the developer that owns the new Beacon Street address. The company plans to demolish the building to create new biotech offices and labs. The February timeline coincides with when a local nonprofit intends to open a new temporary practice studio in Dorchester for the musicians. Arts advocates say the loss of the rehearsal space is a blow to the city's music scene. In the forecast, lots of clouds this evening and overnight tonight. Some random snow flurries down around 30 degrees. Could have some rain tomorrow afternoon, but just mostly a mess of clouds up around 41 degrees. Friday, some morning rain followed by more clouds, strong winds, warm ones though, at least 56 degrees for a high. 32 degrees now in Boston at 506. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. A few parts of California are finally getting a break from the devastating storms, giving rescue crews a chance to catch up. North of Santa Barbara, an air rescue team took advantage of clear and sunny skies. In a video posted by the county fire department, a helicopter airlifted a 79-year-old man from his house after a broken levee swamped his and more than a dozen other homes. Elsewhere in the county, a fire construction crew cleared a debris-covered road, which had trapped hundreds of people at a campsite. For more on those recovery efforts, we've got Scott Safechuck on the line. He's the public information officer for the Santa Barbara County Fire Department. Scott, welcome. Well, uh, thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for being here. To start, could you just share a few details about what the last 24 hours have been like for you and the members of that department? Yeah, if I could go back maybe just a a day before that, maybe the last 72 hours, uh, we were expecting uh, a deluge of rainfall uh, coming into this area. We are no stranger to the effects of what happens when we have water runoff of these in our county. We have historical fire history here. Uh, we have uh, the, this is just, we just reached the five-year anniversary of the Montecito debris flow. And so we have a rich history in, in uh, tragic fires and mud flows in this area. So building up to this event, uh, rainfall coming in, it was still kind of uh, something to, to wait and see how, what this kind of rain was going to be like. And we had a historical rainfall within 24 hours. So within the last day, we've been having some, the, the water's been subsiding, uh, finding its way to the ocean and, and reducing the flood levels uh, in the streets that we have around mm-hmm. here. Uh, but during that time, it was, uh, we had over 400 incidents within uh, a 36 hour period. Uh, we had up to almost 15 inches of rain in the wow. foothills that are 4,000 feet right above the communities below of city of Santa Barbara, parts of uh, Montecito and Carpinteria, where we had this debris flow in the past. Uh, so we had, it was all hands on deck for the different fire department agencies that we have in this county. We have a incident mm. management team that is made up of all of these people. Yeah. And Scott, if I could just ask, what is your top priority for cleanup during a little bit of a lull in the storm system? Yeah, well, we want to make sure that we can get the thoroughfares open, that we can get people back into their residence. Uh, yesterday, we lifted our evacuation orders, and people were able to get back into their houses. For the for the people that are, have flooded houses or damaged houses, it's going to take a little longer for them. You alluded to the fact that, as we've heard, some roads and highways in the county have been flooded or covered in debris. Are there still more roads that need to be cleared? Uh, there are some roads that need to be cleared and repaired. Uh, some of the thoroughfares through Montecito and Santa Barbara have been damaged, uh, and it's going to take some time to fix those. With some areas being more accessible than others, how is coordination working right now with other counties across the state who I would imagine are seeking similar assistance to folks in Santa Barbara? Yeah, we have a great um, mutual aid system. 
uh, within the state because uh, we're, we're so in tune with working with each other. We had people come in to assist us from L.A. County, uh, Ventura County, and from San Luis Obispo. And, and so we work really together to help each other in times of needs because we are going to need help. And so we return those uh, assistance to them as well. We've got about a minute left here. I understand that yeah. there is more rain in the forecast this weekend. What is your biggest concern as we look forward? Well, we it's really what Mother Nature is going to give us. We're hoping that the weather isn't what it is, what it was like the, the last couple days. It does look more promising to us, uh, and I, I don't see it being an effect like we've had in, in the last couple days. So we're thankful for that. Very quickly, just one word of advice for people in California as they prepare for this next round of storms. What would you tell them? Yeah, when people are told to evacuate and it's a warning, pay attention to that. And when it's an order, leave. Scott Safechuck is the public information officer for the Santa Barbara County Fire Department. Scott, thank you for your time. Thank you. Since the Supreme Court's decision to end the constitutional right to abortion last year, some Muslims in America have turned to their faith to gain a better understanding on a key question, what exactly does Islam say about abortion? NPR's Lena Muhammad reports. Iman Abdelhadi had a lot going on in 2015. Professionally, she was studying sociology in grad school. Personally, She was at the beginning of a serious relationship. She was switching birth control methods when she got pregnant. I didn't have the resources to have a baby at that moment in my life. I needed to finish my PhD. I was too soon into this relationship. I didn't have the money on a grad student salary. And I simply didn't want to have a baby. It was a tearful decision. But Abdul Hadi says her partner wasn't ready either. Within a week of finding out that I was pregnant, I decided to get an abortion. Abdul Hadi is now an assistant professor in the University of Chicago's Division of Social Sciences. She studies people's relationships with Muslim communities. I am very happy with my life, and I know that I wouldn't have led the life that I lead now if I had made the decision to stay pregnant. And she says she's secure in her choice to get an abortion because of her upbringing in a devout Muslim community in the Midwest. I learned a lot about the Muslim tradition in the sense that, you know, first of all, the mother's life is the most important thing. Polls show opinions on abortion, like in other faith groups, are deeply divided. According to a survey conducted last March by the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, 56% of Muslim Americans think abortion should actually be legal in all or most cases. You might find that number surprising if you look at some non-Muslim perceptions of abortion in Islam. A simple Twitter search unveils hundreds of comments, spinning the Supreme Court's moves to overturn Roe v. Wade as the Christian version of Sharia law. Here's former Daily Show host Trevor Noah. After all these years of the right screaming about the threats of Sharia law, it turns out they were just jealous. Now, to be clear... Critiques range from attempts at humor to downright Islamophobic takes. One meme that made the rounds on social media was a photoshopped image of Supreme Court justices in beards, turbans, and burqas. Experts on Sharia law say those assumptions come from a place of ignorance because Islam can actually be very permissive of abortion. 
some of the most conservative, so-called most conservative countries in the world, like if you say like Iran or Saudi Arabia, are more permissive of abortion than many American states are. That's Zahra Ayyubi, a professor of Islamic ethics at Dartmouth College. She says key Islamic texts don't mention abortion outright. So rulings in the faith lean on verses that mention fetal development. Based on the verses of the Quran and the Hadith and the prior discussions that jurists have had, we can say that 120 days is really the point at which insolment occurs, is the point at which we can consider the fetus a legal person. And so prior to that, abortion is permissible under certain circumstances. Ayubi also says the faith's ruling on abortion depends on which madhab or school of thought you choose to follow. Some are more liberal, but no matter what, there's always an exception for the pregnant person's well-being in Islam. The most conservative opinion is that abortion is permissible only in cases of mortal danger to the mother at any point. Ayubi also notes that some of the conservatism over abortion is tied to outside influences. Muslims have historically had abortions since the beginning of Islam. That being said, Muslims have also had heavy influence from Christian discourses and have been historically colonized by various European forces for a long time. And many laws were set up to criminalize what were very legal actions that women took with respect to pregnancy and and abortion and so on. And it's still difficult to talk openly about abortion in Muslim spaces. We're going to be recording today. Um, And that's why Heart, a sexual health group that serves Muslims, has been co-hosting virtual workshops like this one. At times, the content that we will be covering will be upsetting. To offer practical guidance and space for collective prayer. I mean, that was so beautiful. Sahir Pirzada is a manager at heart and says prayer has been key in her own reproductive decisions. As she held her three-month-old son on another Zoom call, she told me about her first pregnancy in 2018. We had gone to several ultrasounds, had heard the heartbeat, had seen the fetus moving. Perzada and her husband had been overjoyed, but later tests showed the fetus had trisomy 18 a rare genetic condition that almost always ends in miscarriage or stillbirth. Nothing prepares you for that moment when you get the actual uh, diagnosis. I did pray. I did make the... I did, you know, turn to God as I was making this decision. And I felt more at peace and ease than kind of I thought I would have. She talked it over with her husband, her therapist, and multiple Islamic scholars and decided to terminate the pregnancy. I think it's just ultimately knowing that I, as a person who is carrying the fetus, I am important too, right? And my well-being is important. And that really comes from my understanding of Islam as well. An understanding that Pirzada says she's grateful to share through her work. Lina Mohammed, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up, why there are so many air travel troubles lately, including today. That's ahead on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by professional pastry arts at BU's programs in food and wine, teaching the classic and advanced techniques behind making the perfect flaky, buttery treats. Study with world-class bakers and learn what it takes to launch a food-related career in just 14 weeks. More at bu.edu slash foodandwine slash pastry. An upsweep on Wall Street today. The Dow rose eight-tenths of a percent, 269 points, to finish the day at 33,973. S&P picked up more than one and a quarter percent to close at 39.70. The Nasdaq notched its fourth day of gains, rising about one and three-quarters percent to finish at 10,932. Support for WBUR's Business Report comes from Eversource, a proud sponsor of MassSave, energy-saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. Boston-based Houghton Mifflin Harcourt plans to acquire a nonprofit that makes assessments for K through 12 students. Oregon-based nonprofit NWEA would become a division of the company. Houghton Mifflin Harcourt sold off its books and media division nearly two years ago to focus on K through 12 education market. No confirmation yet on the cost of the acquisition. In the forecast overnight tonight, temperatures right about 30 degrees. Lots of clouds around. We could have rain tomorrow afternoon. Lots of clouds again with temperatures right about 41. 32 degrees now in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The device you're using to listen to us right now can probably tell you what time it is. So does knowing the time help you orient your day or could you just not care less? Next in our science series, Finding Time, Ping Huang finds advantages to getting off of clock time. And for her, it is personal. I'm a person who's chronically late. I've always dismissed the metro or I'll show up at your house 20, really 30 minutes later than I meant to. It's not on purpose. I just lose track of time. And if you're like me, you might have heard what I've been hearing from friends and from partners my whole life. I'm being disrespectful. I'm not valuing their time. But what if their perspective is part of the problem? It's not disrespectful. I don't think it's disrespectful, but that's what I've been told. And somehow you're, you are valued according to how timely you are. Irma McLaurin is an anthropologist and founder of the Black Feminist Archive at the University of Massachusetts. And she says that being on time is a social value that people made up. It was designed after the Industrial Revolution when they started doing assembly lines. And it's like they want people to work around the clock. And suddenly our lives are like really kind of organized according to this. Clocks are great tools for improving efficiency. And sometimes it's important to be on time, like if you really need to catch the train or you're working with others to coordinate a rocket launch to the moon. 
but the idea that every minute of the day should be constructive and billable is also limiting. That's where we lose creativity. That's where we lose uh, flexibility. In a culture obsessed with timeliness, we don't make room for difference, McLaurin says. Time researchers say people fall into two basic time styles. There's clock time and there's event time. For clock timers, the start and end of doing something is dictated by the clock. For event timers, it's more based on a feeling. Tamara Vnet is a time researcher at Yeshiva University, and she has two kids, one on clock time and the other on event time. I ask them, do you want to have lunch? And my clock person will ask, well, what time is it? And my event kid will ask, well, I don't know if I'm hungry yet or not. Avnet says there are pros and cons to each. My clock will eat even if he's not hungry, or he will starve because it's not time to eat yet. My event, on the other hand, will satisfy his needs when they need to be satisfied, but it might not fit with the rest of society. So it might be that when he wants to eat, there's no food. Most people can do a bit of both mindsets, but they generally gravitate towards one or the other. Avnet, who's a clock timer herself, works a lot with Anne-Laure Cellier, a business professor at HEC Paris, and a total event timer. When Cellier is late... I do apologize because I'm aware of social norms, but I don't care about it. Exactly. She doesn't feel guilty. Right. That's right. No, no, but it's very important. After 10 years of time research, Celia knows it's okay to be an event timer who loses track of time. In fact, it has its advantages. Probably the best kick out of event time is you have pleasure in everything you do. Because you keep doing them as long as it feels good to do them. Celier right. says event timers like us are more in tune with our emotions because we use them all the time to figure out when a conversation is over or when to move on from a task. We're also better at staying in the moment and tapping into positive feelings like pride, joy, and gratitude. And since event timers move through the world as we feel like it... We did see that event people feel they have more... They believe they have more control over what happens to them. That's because clock timers give their agency to an external mechanism, the clock. And that leads clock timers to see the world as a random, chaotic place where whatever they're doing doesn't really change the outcome. Whereas event timers see more connections and more cause and effect in the world at large. Salier says these are traits that should be encouraged, not stamped out by forcing all of us to stick to clock time all the time. I think there's a tendency for even timers to know more about clock time than the reverse just because we're in a very clock time world. So this is my plea for some grace and understanding for us event timers. Sure, we might be a little late. We might even be a little early. We're not exactly sure what time it is. But when we are here, we're present and we're ready to work and play. So my question to clock timers is, is it worth stressing about the extra 10 minutes you spent waiting for us? Or can you join me in savoring the good moment that we're having and take some control back in your life instead of giving it up to the clock? Ping Huang, NPR News. Well, it is time now for My Unsung Hero. That's our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Jeff Fister. About 20 years ago, Jeff was driving his 12-year-old son to school on a busy morning in St. Louis. His toddler was in the back seat. I was at one of the city's busiest intersections. The light turned green, and out of nowhere, a car smashed into the back of our car. 
we spun around like a top while the other car flipped and landed upside down. We were shaken up, but luckily we were okay. And so I got out of the car with the kids. There was a police car pulling up, EMS, fire truck, and the baby started crying and it was overwhelming. Um, I was at the street corner directly across from a major medical center. So there were a lot of uh, people on their way to work on the corner. And I turned around and a lady came out of the crowd and just held her arms out. I guess she could see, you know, I was pretty shaken up and I just handed the baby to her. She was wearing some kind of healthcare uniform, maybe a nurse or a assistant. That made me feel safer about handing off the baby. It was really instinctive. And then I turned around and started dealing with phone calls and talking to the police. At one point, I looked over at the woman and saw sparkles in the baby's hair and realized how lucky we were because that was from the shattered window from the accident. When things calmed down, the, the woman handed me the baby, smiled, gave a little wave, and just blended in with the large crowd of people crossing the street. I'm Catholic, I'm practicing Catholic, and I don't necessarily go in for all the angel stuff, you know, winged creatures flying around up in heaven. I, I'm not sure about that. But certainly, I, I think there are everyday people who decide to help someone out just performing simple acts of kindness like that woman did for me. Jeff Fister of St. Louis, Missouri. Jeff's children are all grown up now with kids of their own. He enjoys spending time with his grandchildren and gardening and playing music wherever he can. You can hear more stories like his on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share your story about an unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, could pharmacists play a key role in getting addiction medication directly into the hands of more people who need it? That story is still ahead. In sports tonight, the Celtics will be at the Garden to play the New Orleans Pelicans. 7.30 game time. Bruins are off until tomorrow night when they'll host the Seattle Kraken. Bruins coach Jim Montgomery will coach his first NHL All-Star game next month. Today, the league selected Montgomery to lead the Atlantic Division team in the match February 4th in Sunrise, Florida. He's led Boston to the best record in the NHL this season. And in the forecast, clouds are settling in for a couple of days. Tonight, overcast down around 30, a few scattered flurries. Tomorrow, clouds lasting the day. Rain after about 3 in the afternoon, highs around 41. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. You know, what happened in Brazil on Sunday is actually scarier than January 6th. 
Bolsonaro had essentially told his supporters to move on, and Bolsonaro himself had given up, but it didn't matter. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration says it's working to learn more about widespread technical outages that forced all flights in the U.S. to be temporarily suspended today. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says there is no indication so far that the computer system failure was a result of a cyber attack. There's been no direct evidence or indication of that, but uh, we are also not going to rule that out until we have a a clearer and better understanding of what's taking place. But again, uh, no indication of that at this time. The technical outage forced airlines to delay more than 9,000 flights. More than 1,300 others have been canceled. In a statement, the Federal Aviation Administration says it's looking into the cause of the initial problem. New York Congressman George Santos is facing growing calls to resign just days after being sworn into office. Republican leaders on Long Island are pushing Santos to step down after he admitted to lying about his history on the campaign trail. NPR's Brian Mann reports Santos is also accused of violating campaign finance laws. During an emotional news conference, Republican officials lined up to condemn Santos as a pathological liar for inventing a history of working for Wall Street banks and claiming falsely his family escaped the Holocaust, among other deceptions. Republican Congressman Anthony D'Esposito called for Santos to step down, as did Joseph Cairo Jr., the influential head of Nassau County's Republican committee. As I said, he's disgraced the House of Representatives. I am calling for his immediate resignation. Asked by reporters whether he will heed calls to step down, Santos answered, I will not. GOP leaders in Washington have been largely silent about the Santos scandal. Brian Mann, NPR News. Stocks traded higher today on Wall Street. At the close, the Dow was up 268 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. We have more now on the federal aviation safety system that broke down overnight. About 350 flights at Logan Airport have been delayed today as a result. WBUR Simone Rio spoke with some frustrated passengers at Logan. Several travelers told me their flights had been delayed, some for hours and in one case just 10 minutes. Diana Gottschalk was headed to Indianapolis before she got a message saying her noon flight was moved to 1.30. And then slightly after moved to 2, and then like an hour after that moved back to 12.12, and then on the way here moved back to 12.30, and that's, I think, where we're still at. <laughs> I'd never had it where it went delayed and then went backwards. Federal officials say air traffic is gradually returning to normal across the U.S. The government is investigating the cause of the safety system outage. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The Massachusetts Attorney General's office is leading a 22-state coalition that's backing the Biden administration's efforts to cancel some student loan debt. The Supreme Court will hear a challenge to the effort, which is on hold while the court case plays out. The coalition filed a brief with the court today, arguing the administration acted within its authority to issue debt relief to students affected by the pandemic. Some Republican-led states say the White House lacks the power to cancel student debt and that the plan would hurt loan servicers by reducing their revenue. Massachusetts Congressman Bill Keating has reintroduced legislation to aid Ukraine in its ongoing war against Russia. 
One bill ensures that no future administration can recognize Russia's attempt to annex Ukraine. The other prohibits the use of federal funds to support Russia's participation in the G7, a group of the world's most advanced economies. And in sports, Red Sox third baseman Rafael Devers says he always wanted to stay in Boston. The player and the team met with the media today to talk about Devers' 11-year, $331 million contract extension announced last week. Through an interpreter, Devers said he never had any doubt he would re-sign with Boston. No, you know, as I said, it's the organization that has given me everything the organization that has given me everything, um, so that was a factor. Um, but also, free agency isn't easy, and it's a tough process, and I just didn't want to have to go through that. Devers could have become a free agent at the end of the upcoming season. The Sox originally signed him in 2013. The 26-year-old has since been named to two all-star teams. In the forecast, mainly cloudy tonight, falling to about 30 degrees. Tomorrow, gray through the day. Showers in the afternoon, turning milder, up around 41 degrees. And then for Friday, rain for the first part of the day. Clouds hang in there, windy and warmer, could reach the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR, 32 degrees now at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. If it feels like we've been talking about air travel a lot lately, well, we are. A historically bad winter storm canceled many flights during the holiday travel season. A software meltdown at Southwest Airlines followed that winter storm. And this morning, the Federal Aviation Administration temporarily halted all domestic flights from taking off after a critical safety system failed. No U.S. flights were put at risk, but over 9,000 were delayed today, over 1,300 canceled. That's according to the tracking service FlightAware. Jeff Freeman is president and CEO of the U.S. Travel Association and is here to help us understand how the travel industry views this. Hi there. Welcome. Well, it's good to be with you. Thanks for being here. So today you issued a statement saying that the country's transportation network, quote, desperately needs significant upgrades. So specifically, what upgrades are we talking about here? What are your first priorities? Well, to the point that you were making in the opening, you know, this is one in a long line of problems we've had in the air travel system. More than 20 percent of flights in 2022 were delayed or canceled. We've got a thousand fewer air traffic controllers today than we had 10 years ago. We haven't had a head of the FAA in nearly a year. We simply are not investing in the technology, in the people that we need to build an air travel experience that the traveling public can appreciate, an experience that they enjoy, an experience that they deserve. So I heard you there talk about people, also technology, and today the particular system which went offline is something called the Notice to Air Mission System. Do the companies that you represent argue that that is among the technologies that needs an upgrade, or what technologies are you specifically looking at here? Yeah, today's system is absolutely critical. It helps pilots understand in real time how things are changing on the ground or in weather and other issues. It's a critical system. You can't fly without it. 
the challenge is so much of the technology that we're using in the air travel system is 1960s technology, 1970s technology. This is the type of stuff that hasn't been upgraded sufficiently in years. Many people have technology in their cars with GPS systems that are more sophisticated than some of what the FAA is using. We need a wholesale review of the air travel experience of the FAA technology, and we're going to have to bite the bullet, make the billions of dollars investments that are necessary in order to build an experience that's reliable and experience people can count on an experience that will encourage people to travel. You know, especially coming out of the pandemic, we want people going from point A to point B. How do we encourage them to do that? Sure. So it's a new season of divided government on Capitol Hill. So I'm curious what the outlook there looks like to you. Do you get the sense that there is appetite in Congress to spend that level of money when it comes time to reauthorize the FAA budget? You know, it might surprise people, but we're actually optimistic here. Uh, These issues are not partisan issues. These are issues that federal policymakers experience every week traveling home to their districts. They know the air travel system is not what it needs to be. I think what they need to know, though, is the traveling public isn't going to tolerate this. You know, it doesn't have to be this way. Be better. And the more the traveling public is sending that message, the better off we'll be. The FAA does not have a permanent head administrator. The Senate has not held a confirmation hearing for the Biden administration's nominee. Would a confirmed permanent head help these types of issues from occurring? Well, it gets to the broader issue. We haven't appointed a head of the FAA. We haven't replaced thousands of air traffic controllers. We're down on the number of pilots we have. We need a holistic review. Getting ahead of the FAA is the first step. But this is going to be a multi-year investment in improving the air travel experience. I think we have to understand, we have to embrace there are economic consequences to not building this system, to not making it reliable. Today, the costs of today for American businesses, uh, certainly and many others is substantial. We're confronting this day in and day out. Are we ready to take this system seriously? Are we ready to make the investments that are necessary? We've been speaking with Jeff Freeman of the U.S. Travel Association. Jeff, thank you for being here. Thank you for the time. Medications can help people quit opioids, but fewer than 15% of patients who could benefit from those medications actually receive them. Researchers based at Rhode Island Hospital tested one possible remedy, offering addiction treatment in pharmacies. From member station WBUR, Martha Biebinger reports. Mike, a longtime heroin user, was waiting for a bus when he saw an ad for the study. We agreed not to use his full name because he has used illegal drugs. If Mike enrolled in the study, he could get free buprenorphine, brand name Suboxone, at a nearby pharmacy. Mike was in recovery at the time on buprenorphine, but somebody had stolen his supply. I was very gloomy. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't want to go back on drugs. Uh, I happened to see the sign. It was a godsend. Mike went right to the closest participating pharmacy and had a new buprenorphine prescription that day. Andrew Terranova, who manages the pharmacy where Mike went, says people often search for openings and wait hours, if not days, for a first treatment appointment. Patients were grateful that uh, they were able to come in, meet with somebody that day, and get seen. Terranova works for Genoa Healthcare, a national pharmacy network often inside community mental health centers. For this study, Terranova and pharmacists in six high overdose areas learned how to document a person's drug history and assess their state of withdrawal. During the initial visit, Terranova would call a physician or nurse who could write a prescription. Treatment on demand may help explain why patients enrolled at pharmacies were 72% more likely to continue treatment for at least a month than were patients who went to more traditional treatment centers. 
The study's lead author, Tracy Green, says it shows pharmacies are an effective way to expand addiction treatment. We need a lot more if we're going to try to turn the tide in the opioid crisis. So the pharmacists are, are at the ready. The National Association of Chain Drug Stores says community pharmacies are an untapped resource in the opioid crisis. But Dr. Margaret Jarvis, chief of addiction medicine at Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania, says she isn't sure mainstream pharmacies are ready to offer addiction treatment along with flu shots or blood pressure checks. The main reason, says Jarvis, is stigma. It's everywhere, everywhere. There's not a place in our society, especially within the healthcare industry, where that doesn't exist. There are other reasons the study results could be hard to replicate. Jarvis says physicians may not want to hand over some authority to pharmacists. Pharmacies nationwide are short-staffed. And there's a funding dilemma. Ann Burns with the American Pharmacists Association says right now there's no way to pay pharmacists for addiction counseling and care because they are not considered medical providers. There would have to be a payment model identified and to prioritize a service like this over some of the other activities that are going on in the pharmacy. But what could be more important than helping people avoid deadly street drugs, asks Mike. He remembers the cravings taking hold that day at the bus stop before Mike turned and saw the ad for free buprenorphine. The alternative would have been fentanyl, which is a crapshoot. I've seen too many people die. Researchers are talking to the Genoa pharmacy chain about expanding this pilot as the U.S. sets new records for deaths after a drug overdose. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Boston. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. High energy prices and inflation are taking a toll on UK businesses, and researchers say smaller retailers are struggling to survive. Willem Marx reports. In Britain, a country long ago described as a nation of shopkeepers, many small store operators today are struggling to survive. Once a minute, darling, thank you. In the town of Broxburn, just west of Scotland's capital city, Edinburgh, Waz Abbas has served his convenience store customers for 23 years. Perfect. Thank you so much. Cheers, guys. But now rising fuel costs are creating fresh financial pressures. Everything that comes to your door is delivered. So the fuel is going to impact it, irrespective of whether you're getting a block of cheese or a pallet of beer delivered. It is going to affect the cost of it. So it came to a point that businesses like ours couldn't absorb it any longer. His electricity bills have also more than doubled since November, partly a consequence of the conflict in Ukraine. Despite massive government subsidies, he's worried about raising his prices further in response. But how much can you put up a jug of milk? How much can you put up a bag of crisps? How much can you put up a bar of chocolate before you, the end user, thinks, well, actually, I can't afford to now eat that bar of chocolate? If this energy cost crisis continues, Abbas is concerned he'll either need to let staff go or else force his wife and himself to work for free. Other alternatives, he says, are even worse. Too many guys now are looking at 
actually either we will survive this year or we will close our door and walk away and rather than pay the bills. That's where it's got to. Across Britain, many retailers are facing similarly tough choices. The Centre for Retail Research found that more than 11,000 independent stores closed in 2022 alone. Professor Joshua Bamfield published those findings. A lot of retailers have said to themselves, there's no way we can turn the shop into a paying proposition. We're paying to keep it open, so we might just as well close it. He says the UK's current recession and inflation are only partly to blame. The move to online shopping's played a huge role too by creating short-term uncertainty. We talk about crisis. The British retail industry is in a stage of transition. I think that it, within a couple of years, it should be clearer what the right answer is in every area and retail will be in a rather better position. In the meantime, government support is seeking to stabilise the situation for shop owners, with lower tax rates and support for utility bills, at least through this winter. But long-term trends in the changing behaviour of British shoppers could create new opportunities too, says Javier Dillon, an economist at industry trade group the British Retail Consortium. Commerce isn't just opening up a store now and having a warehouse to store your goods and your various different products. It's barely possible in today's economy for somebody to, to start up a business and start promoting it on Instagram and get a micro retail business off the ground that way. Waz Abbas says he's adapting to digital retailing as best he can. But by the time his kids are his age, he fears Britain's centuries-old tradition of shopkeeping may have become a thing of the past. For NPR News, I'm Villa Marks in London. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, we revisit a conversation with actress Michelle Yeoh about her leading role in the sci-fi action film Everything Everywhere All at Once, for which she won a Golden Globe Award last night. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com. No one hit the $1.1 billion multi-state Mega Millions lottery drawing last night, but there are two people who became million-dollar winners in Massachusetts for matching five of the six numbers drawn. The state lottery says the million-dollar tickets were sold at Wegmans in Chestnut Hill and at Jacqueline Supermarket in Lawrence. In case you're wondering, the next Mega Millions drawing is Friday night. The jackpot is expected to be $1.35 billion. In the forecast, a few flurries around the region. Cloudy skies tonight, dipping to 30. Tomorrow, about 41 degrees for a high. Lots of clouds. Some rain in the mid to late afternoon tomorrow. And Friday should be bringing rain in the first half of the day. Temperatures possibly creeping all the way to the mid-50s on Friday. It's 549. Planet Earth. As of late last year, human population, 8 billion. And by the end of the century, it's expected to top 10 billion. For me, 9 and then 10 billion is not going to very much change my life. But there are places in the world, in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, another billion will make people's lives potentially worse. 
That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Last night, Michelle Yeoh won her first Golden Globe for her role in the 2022 hit comedy movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. She stars as an aging laundromat owner turned superhero named Evelyn Wong. In her acceptance speech, Yeoh noted her own feelings about getting older in Hollywood. As the days, the years, and the numbers get bigger, it seems like opportunities start to get smaller as well. Then along came the best gift. And if that role were not enough to remind folks of her serious action star chops, Yo made sure everyone knew when the ceremony cued the music to wrap her speech. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Shut up, please. (laughs) I I can beat you up, okay? And that's serious. It's true. She famously did her own stunts and fight scenes in Hong Kong martial arts films of the 1980s. So when our co-host Elsa Chang spoke with Michelle Yeoh last April, she asked what it was like doing physical comedy for the first time. I think I had it easy in the past where I just look cool, you know, (laughs) right. I know exactly what I'm doing, that kind of thing. (laughs) Oh my God. Martial arts is simple. It's easy compared to physical comedy. (laughs) Physical comedy is like timing, it's precision, it's so many things coming together at the right time. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I never did it before because it was so hard. (laughs) No, and I think it was so challenging that I really, really enjoyed it very much because you had to literally fracture your mind into knowing the moves and doing them like you're a master, but your face is completely registering shock and then wonder and like, oh my God, how the hell am I doing this? Like all at the same time. I love that point because it was new for me to see you in a role where you did not look glamorous or intimidatingly (laughs) beautiful or regal. I mean, how did it feel to look so intensely ordinary for this movie? Ah! But that was it. You know, I felt that this was such a perfect opportunity to give a voice to the very ordinary mothers and housewife who are out there, you know, doing the most mundane things and get so taken for granted. Yes. And then let her discover that, oh, my God, she is a superhero. Exactly. What was so cool for me was to see an unglamorous Chinese woman, the kind of woman who might be invisible to people on the bus or in Mm -hmm, Chinatown. mm -hmm. To see that Chinese immigrant woman play a superhero felt so different to me, right? It was like almost subversive. I loved that. Yes, yes. I think that was one of the main points that we were trying to bring to the surface. It's like this ordinary Evelyn Wong, you know, at the end of the day, finding what she will never give up. That's her love for her family, her daughter, that, you know, I think today we find that so relatable because communication is one of the the, the most difficult things I find yeah. with uh, the different generations, Absolutely. especially with Chinese immigrant, any immigrant family. You're here for the American dream. And that's not an easy dream, is it? And some don't ever get it right but they don't give up trying. I think that's one of the messages for me is like, whatever you do, if you give up, you've already failed. And you can't give up on family and love and kindness. You just have to keep trying. Well, you know, this movie, it doesn't just shift 
who we see as superheroes, it also kind of shifts who we see leading a Hollywood movie. Like, you have spent almost four decades in film, and now at age 59, this is the first time that you have ever gotten top billing in a Hollywood movie. What does that feel like at this moment in your career? It's like, finally, yeah, finally, we have our moment. Um, and thank God it didn't come a moment too soon. <laughs> no, I think I've waited. And I think uh, not just me, there's so many of us uh, that looks like me, like you, who are waiting, who are still waiting for the opportunities. I think the tide has turned, but we also need to be responsible, good storytellers, and seize the opportunities that are presented now right. for women, for uh diversity, but don't let it just be lip service. It has to mean something. So this movie in particular, it's about an Asian immigrant woman, an aging Asian immigrant woman. When was the last time you saw that, right? Right, yeah. exactly. Not only be in a lead role, but to be the superhero, yeah. Mm -hmm. But it took us a long time. I think in the older days, you know how Asians put their heads down and say, okay, let's just get on yes, with it. Let's work right. hard. Let's not rock the boat. And our hard work will pay off. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Amen. You know, sometimes we have to rock the boat. Absolutely. We just have to rock the boat and say, look at us, give us a chance. Because guess what? We exist in your society. We are part of the society and very, very much an intricate part of this whole community. This is the only way we will get more opportunities if we fight for it and no longer be able to say, okay, I'll turn the other cheek. Dang, no more turning the other cheek. Absolutely. Well, speaking of taking a stand, making decisions, making choices in life, you know, your character, Evelyn, she travels back and forth between alternate universes in this story where she catches glimpses of what her life would have been like had she made different choices. And it made me wonder, if you have ever imagined what other universes would have opened up had you made different choices in life? Of course, there are things in life I wish I did, which would have made me smarter, healthier, wiser uh, when I was younger. But do I sit there and go, I wish I took another path because then I wouldn't have all the amazing things I have today and the career that I've forged uh, over the last 30 something years. So I don't really spend time doing that. But I think in everything, everywhere, all at once, every choice that you make splinters into a full-blown universe of its own with a real life, irregardless of whether you have hot dog fingers, whether you're a rock, what you have evolved to. I think the core spirit, the core emotion is very, very real in whatever universe you are in. Yeah. I felt like this movie was telling us Ultimately, it's not useful in life to wonder, what if? Exactly. I think so. Because no matter what path you choose will involve some loss, but also some gain. Yeah? Yes. And I think you have to be present. This life is yours. But if you're not present, it's wasted. Time waits for no one. You know, when we're born, we age and then we die. And God forbid we die before we have lived our lives. So we have to be present in whatever universe, in whatever life, because if you give up on being present, then you give up on your life. So well said. Michelle Yeoh stars in the new movie, Everything Everywhere, All at Once. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us. Uh, 
Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Noom, providing an online evaluation and the tools to help people lead healthier lives through behavior change. More information at Noom, N-O-O-M.com. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at WTGrantFoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR in the forecast. We have a few flurries around the region. Overcast skies overnight tonight, dipping to about 30 degrees, not too far from where it is right now. Tomorrow should reach around 41 for a high. Plenty of clouds around. Rain in the mid to late afternoon, sometime after 3 o'clock most likely. Friday should bring rain for the first half of the day. Temperatures could make it all the way to the mid-50s on Friday. And then the weekend should begin with partly sunny skies Saturday, up around 39 degrees. Forecasters think new data say annual inflation eased a bit last month, but prices are still climbing faster than the Federal Reserve would like. Follow that story tomorrow at 90.9 WBUR. 32 degrees in Boston. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A critical FAA computer system failed, leading to delays or cancellations of thousands of flights. The antiquated system is now functioning, but questions remain. Now we have to understand how this could have happened in the first place uh, and what the original source of the errors or, or the corrupted files would have been. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, Chinese security services are quietly arresting people who protested the country's previous COVID-19 controls. And why families experiencing homelessness are turning to hospital emergency departments in Massachusetts at historic rates. They're choosing between a bunch of really terrible options. And so I think that's how we end up becoming this kind of front door to the shelter system for people. Also, the Miami Heat set an NBA record. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Airports are still playing catch-up today after an early morning system meltdown at the FAA caused the nation's aviation system to come to a halt. Member station WABE Jim Burris reports even hours after the NOTAM system went back online, delays still linger at the world's busiest airport. About half of the day's scheduled flights in and out of Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson were delayed or canceled as of Wednesday afternoon. Earlier in the day, the FAA had ordered a two-hour halt to all domestic takeoffs after a critical safety system used to communicate with pilots failed. But because of severe congestion in local airspace, 
Officials lifted the stoppage for Hartsfield-Jackson and Newark International after about an hour. The FAA continues to investigate but has given no further details on the outage's cause. For NPR News, I'm Jim Burris in Atlanta. Officials are still deciding next steps for a six-year-old boy who shot his teacher at a Virginia elementary school. Ryan Murphy with member station WHRO explains. The child so far has not been charged in the shooting that wounded his 25-year-old teacher in her first grade classroom. The boy is currently being held at a medical facility under a temporary detention order. That's the same legal mechanism used to hold people who are experiencing a mental health crisis. But those orders do have an expiration date. Newport News police say the hold was authorized for 96 hours. They won't say when the hold was issued. The boy was first taken into police custody Friday afternoon, so time is running out. Once the hold's expired, some kind of court proceeding will have to occur, either to press charges against the six-year-old or to direct him to further services. Legal experts told WHRO it's extremely unlikely that a child this young would be criminally charged. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Murphy. Guitarist Jeff Beck has died at the age of 78. According to a statement, he died yesterday after contracting bacterial meningitis. Beck replaced Eric Clapton in the Yardbirds, helped launch Rod Stewart's career, and became a guitar legend to legions of fans. NPR's Andrew Limbong has more. Rock, funk, or jazz, whatever Jeff Beck was playing, you could tell he loved the guitar. In 2010, he told NPR about his purist's approach to the instrument. The guitar has always been abused uh, with distortion units and, and funny sort of effects, but when you don't do that and you just let the genuine sound come through, there's a whole magic there. Jeff Beck was born in a London suburb in 1944. As a kid, he heard Les Paul, and that was it. Unlike many of his guitar hero peers, Beck shied away from the spotlight, preferring to let his guitar do the talking. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. Stocks posted gains of nearly 1% today. The Dow was up 268 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A jury has found a former MBTA trolley driver not guilty of criminal negligence in a crash that injured about two dozen people. Owen Turner told investigators he may have fallen asleep moments before the trolley he was operating accelerated and rear-ended another train in 2021 on the Green Line on Commonwealth Avenue in Boston. Investigators found no evidence that Turner was under, under the influence of drugs or alcohol. A new report finds Boston is the fourth most congested city in the world when it comes to traffic. And the head of the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce says it's more than just a transportation issue. Here's WBR's Fausto Menard. The report from traffic analytics firm Inrix finds the average Boston area commuter spends 134 hours a year in traffic. Chamber President Jim Rooney says not only is that bad for the climate, it affects the city's efforts to attract talent and businesses. The ability to get in and out of downtown or the economic activity centers as well as the ability to move within the downtown and economic activity centers is a deciding factor for people where they'll locate a business or where they'll work. Rooney says recent service and safety problems with the MBTA have led to more people driving into the city rather than taking public transportation. And he says mobility issues impact things like economic inequality and housing access. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Boston University researchers say they may have discovered why the Omicron variant of the coronavirus appears to result in less severe illness. Their work is published in the journal Nature, as WBR's Deborah Becker reports. 
The paper says mutations in a protein in the Omicron variant appear to be why it causes less severe sickness. Professor Ron Corley, chair of BU's microbiology department, says this difference in Omicron, as well as vaccines, made people less sick. And this just simply shows that it's not only the vaccines, but it's also the virus itself that has changed. And and that we did not know before this study. Corley says the research could lead to new medicines for COVID. Federal regulators have determined that because the BU research was privately funded, the university did not violate federal research standards when it created a version of the virus that combined the original strain with Omicron. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Boston Marathon has announced its full professional men's field for this year. The lineup includes world record holders, Olympians, Paralympians, and three runners who have won in Boston before, including last year's men's winner, Evans Chibet of Kenya. The marathon is April 17th. In the forecast, mainly cloudy tonight, falling a few degrees to about 30. Tomorrow, gray through the day. Showers in the afternoon, turning milder, up around 41. And then Friday, rain for the first part of the day. Clouds hang in there, windy and warmer, could reach the mid-50s. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Things are returning to normal now, but it was chaos once again at the nation's airports this morning. A critical FAA system failed, and that failure led to a ground stop of all departing flights across the United States for several hours. The FAA got the system back online. Flights resumed around 9 o'clock Eastern, but not before the outage forced airlines to delay, if not completely cancel thousands of flights. Joining us from Chicago is NPR transportation correspondent David Shaper. And first of all, David, what what is this FAA system that failed? Well, this is called the NOTAM system, which stands for Notice to Air Missions. And it's what the FAA uses to notify pilots and other airline and airport operations personnel of any potential hazards they might come across that could affect a flight. So these are notifications about things that might just be out of the ordinary or somewhat abnormal, like a a certain runway being closed or a taxiway that's under repair. Or there may be like airspace closures due to military exercises in certain areas, or they may even use it to communicate reports of turbulence or large flocks of birds, since bird strikes can actually cause an, an, an engine failure. NOTAMs are critical safety, uh, critical pieces of information for safety that pilots need to have. And that's why when this system failed, the, the FAA instituted a complete ground stop for a good 90 minutes or so. Has it ever failed before? Well, uh, experts I've talked to say they've never seen the NOTAM system go down like this before. An impact on air travel was significant, even if it was temporary. Flights did resume rather quickly, and although airlines are still working to catch up, there are still all kinds of delays and cancellations across the country. You know, the last time there was a nationwide ground stop of departing aircraft, that was 9-11. The White House says there's no evidence that this outage was a result of a cyber attack. But President Biden told reporters today he is ordering a full investigation, and he asked Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg to report directly back to him. Mike McCormick is a former safety official at the FAA. He now teaches air traffic management at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and he says this system failure never put any flights at risk. 
And he notes that the FAA is investing hundreds of millions of dollars in upgrading all of its systems and building redundancies. But still, this incident does raise concerns. The surprising part to me that after this years of upgrade and investment in a next generation aviation system, how one, whatever it may be, problem caused this complete failure in the system. And there should never be a single point of failure. I should add that McCormick, as a former FAA official, says he has complete confidence in the agency's technology and the upgrades that are underway, and he says they will find out what went wrong and fix any problems that may exist. Well, that's reassuring. I'm glad he has complete confidence, but I can't be the only one thinking back to the chaos over the holidays Mm -hmm. uh, between cold weather and the whole meltdown over at Southwest Airlines. It would seem to raise broader questions about the tech that that is supporting our nation's system of air travel. Well, certainly there are a lot of concerns about the airlines and their technology systems themselves. But when it comes to the FAA and the federal government's uh, investments in technology, there are those who say they haven't spent enough and and done enough in recent years as, as well. Republican Sam Graves, the new chairman of the House Transportation Committee, who is a pilot himself, issued a statement saying that this incident, quote, highlights a huge vulnerability in our air transportation system, adding that the DOTs and FAA's failure to properly maintain an operate the air traffic control system is inexcusable. Senator Maria Cantwell, the Democratic chair of the Senate Commerce and Transportation Committee, says she too is concerned and will hold hearings on the issue. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg raised his own concerns today on CNN. We need to design in in a field that's changing a lot and is going to be changing a lot more in the years to come. We need to design a system that does not have those kind of vulnerabilities. All right. So that's Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, uh, one of many people who uh, we were hearing from as we try to make sense of what happened today with our nation's air travel. NPR's David Shaper in Chicago. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mary Louise. Last November, thousands of protesters across China gathered for peaceful and rare demonstrations against the country's strict COVID policies. The government lifted all COVID restrictions soon after. But now, the China security agencies are quietly arresting people they believe organized the demonstrations. NPR's Emily Fang reports. The 26-year-old editor knew the police were coming after her, and so she recorded her last public words as a free woman. And Pierre managed to see the video. She says, I've delegated some friends to publicize this video after I disappear. When you see this video, I will have been arrested, just like some of my friends have been. She had just gotten her master's degree in history the year before and now works at a Beijing publishing press. We're keeping her anonymous and are not publishing anyone's name in the story for their safety because association with foreign media could bring them further legal trouble. Like many people of all ages across China, this editor was moved to attend vigils on behalf of the people who died, either under strict COVID lockdown conditions or who were denied health care because of COVID restrictions. We care about our society, she says in her video. We sympathize with everyone who lost their lives. This is why we came out that night. What is the purpose of your retaliation? Why are you making the lives of ordinary young people the price? Now, these young demonstrators all face an uncertain fate. When my friends were arrested in December, she says in the video, they were brought into the police station and made to sign arrest papers with a blank space for what crime they would be eventually prosecuted for. Nor did the paper specify where and when they were arrested. 
She herself was arrested on Christmas Eve. Among eight people NPR was able to confirm were detained or arrested starting in late December, in the weeks after the demonstrations. Most of them are young journalists and writers, many of them friends with each other. Here's one of their friends. Among the first to be arrested was a freelance art journalist. After being interrogated and released a few times, she was panicking. She finally disappeared in December. There's also a young, dynamic Beijing journalist. She never had radical political views. She loves literature, went to films and book clubs, and is a big fan of Chizuko Ueno, a very popular Japanese feminist scholar. The security crackdown is ongoing, and those involved could face lengthy prison times. To protect their safety, the voices you hear now are actors voicing their interviews with NPR. One of those arrested comes from an affluent family and feels guilty that other people still live in poverty and pain. So she helped find transportation for doctors and dialysis patients during the Shanghai lockdown and remotely coordinated volunteer work in Wuhan when it was under lockdown. If even ordinary people like my friends, who peacefully participated in a vigil, can be arrested, anyone could be taken. Police tell families the arrests and others are to protect national security. And that means an extra level of secrecy, making it extremely hard to even confirm more people who have been arrested. NPR reached out to the police departments who made the arrests, but they did not respond. The relatives of one of those arrested explains how police are careful not to leave a paper trail. As soon as I signed her arrest papers, the police took them away from me. Family and friends of those arrested say some of them have been charged with disrupting social order. They fear they may be further accused of colluding with foreign countries like the U.S. to plan the protests in November, a theory some Chinese officials have proposed. Many of those arrested are women. The police need a theory to explain away the protests, and they're trying to find an organizer to blame. Now their working theory seems to be that a group of feminists influenced by Western ideas organized the demonstrations. This is something protesters explicitly denied to NPR. They emphasized the November protests and vigils were merely to express how frustrated they were by nearly three years of China's zero-COVID policy that had left people literally starving or trapped in their own homes and destroyed the economy. Now those zero-COVID rules have been lifted, but some of those who spoke out against them face prison. Emily Fang, NPR News. Compared to, say, a thunderous dunk. Or a last-second three-point shot from way far out. Curry, way downtown. The free throw is a pretty unglamorous part of basketball, but every old school coach will scream about just how important it is to sink those uncontested shots you get after being fouled. And everyone who just loves the fundamentals of basketball had their dreams come true last night in Miami. The Oklahoma City Thunder were in town, and the game was not historic at first. But Oklahoma City kept fouling, and Miami kept making foul shots. Butler is a perfect 8 for 8 from the free throw line. Miami Heat star Jimmy Butler made by far the most free throws, 23 in all. But every foul shot that everyone on the team took, they went in. And the announcers began to take notice. See tonight, the Heat with 28 consecutive free throws made. Their franchise record is 30. 
You got to finish the game perfect. As the game wound down, the Heat inch closer to history. And Miami back at the line, having made 37 consecutive free throws with a minute 47 left, approaching an NBA record. And Butler calmly cashes another one in. So there's just seconds left in the game. The Heat had tied the NBA record, 39 free throws without a miss. With the Heat down two, Jimmy Butler made a shot to tie the game and in the process was fouled again. That earned him a single free throw with not only the game, but the NBA record on the line. Record set in 1982. And Butler makes it. 40 in a row. A perfect 40 for 40. That's a new league record. And more importantly to them, the Heat also took the lead and soon thereafter the win. And we have to assume earned a day off from practicing their free throws. You're listening to All Things Considered. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, emergency rooms in Massachusetts being used as homeless shelters. On Wall Street, an upsweep today. The Dow rose eight-tenths of a percent, 269 points, to finish the day at 33,973. S&P picked up more than one and a quarter percent to close at 39.70. The Nasdaq notched its fourth day of gains, rising about one and three quarters percent to finish at 10,932. Marketplace has details of this day in business coming up in about 10 minutes. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. A China-based airline is aiming to reopen routes between Logan Airport and two major Chinese air hubs. Hainan Airlines filed paperwork with the American transportation officials to restart flights from Boston to Beijing and Shanghai. It stopped the flights when the pandemic began. The company declined questions about the plan to answer questions about the plan. China's airports are reopening to international travel as the country lifts strict rules aimed at stopping the spread of COVID. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, understanding that now more than ever, we need the ocean and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu team. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Cloudy tonight down around 30 degrees. Rain tomorrow afternoon, mostly just a lot of clouds up around 41 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Massachusetts, pediatric emergency rooms are seeing a fair number of patients who do not actually need medical care. As Gabriella Emanuel of member station WBUR reports, families experiencing homelessness are turning to ERs for shelter in record numbers. At Boston Medical Center, Oscar confided in an ER doctor that she and her eight-year-old son had nowhere to live. 
She says the situation was really stressful. They just arrived in Massachusetts after a five-year journey from Haiti. We're using her middle name because her family was a target of violence there. Hospital staff sent Oscar and her son to a field office for the state-run family shelter system. But by the end of the day, they still had nowhere to go. She says a state employee called an Uber and sent them back to the hospital in pouring rain to spend the night there. Melissa Dean from Boston Children's Hospital says many families tell her similar stories. They say they were sent by state officials, people at the airport, relatives, even strangers. This past year, her hospital saw about 550 families in the ER whose primary concern was housing. It's massive. We have had to dedicate, I would say, close to 40 percent of our social work resources to this problem. For decades, ERs all over the country have been a place where people experiencing homelessness can go. Yet Massachusetts is in a unique situation. It's the only state that legally guarantees housing for eligible families. But as those families work through the shelter application, they sometimes have nowhere to go, except the ER. This is becoming a particular problem lately because the number of families turning to ERs has ballooned. It's because an affordable housing crisis is colliding with a spike in migration. Dean and her staff of ER social workers help parents navigate the shelter application. The process is quite complex. You know, whether or not a family's income eligible can be as tedious as looking at every little deposit it can take days to track down everything for the application. Birth certificates, housing history, bank statements. Many families stay in the ER that whole time. And since these kids don't usually have medical concerns, they wait as all the patients with health issues are seen first. Amanda Stewart, an ER doctor at Boston Children's, says pediatric hospitals are so busy right now that families in need of housing often stay in the ER waiting room all night, never getting a room or a bed. There are alarms going off 24-7. There's just lots of potentially scary things happening. And not to mention, of course, there's infectious diseases that we don't need to expose them to if they aren't there for medical reasons. Stewart says it all takes a toll on the family's mental health. One family stayed at Boston Children's for nearly a month. Plus, it's expensive. The Massachusetts Medicaid system usually picks up the tab, paying for each child each night. The average was $557, which at the time of when we studied it was about four and a half times the cost of a night in shelter. And so these are just completely preventable, unnecessary costs to the healthcare system. But in Massachusetts, there's not another 24-hour option for families who are newly homeless. So some end up sleeping in cars, staying outside, or going to the ER. They're choosing between a bunch of really terrible options. And so I think that's how we end up becoming this kind of front door to the shelter system for people. Massachusetts officials declined interview requests, but a spokesperson says it's not state policy to direct families to the ER. Oscar and her son got lucky. After going to the ER two nights in a row, they found temporary housing with a nonprofit while applying for the shelter system. With all their stuff packed into a few little bags, Oscar and her son get into a taxi. All right, thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. <laughs> they wave goodbye to their caseworker and head to a family shelter. Oscar says she's hoping to find stability and a school for her son. 
they've made it through the Massachusetts Family Shelter System's front door. But experts estimate dozens of other children and parents are still seeking shelter in local ERs each night. For NPR News, I'm Gabriela Emanuel in Boston. Maybe the answer is because it was there. The question, why would big wave surfers paddle or get towed into the ocean on jet skis in the hopes of surfing waves that are sometimes many stories high? Well, that sport lost an icon last week. The famed Brazilian surfer Marcio Freire died towing surfing in the Portuguese town of Nazaré. An underwater canyon there that is three miles deep generates some of the biggest surfable waves in the world, including the biggest wave ever surfed at 86 feet. Though he had been surfing Nazare for years, Freire made his name in Hawaii. In the 1990s, he and a few friends from northeastern Brazil made their way to Hawaii, where big wave surfing was emerging. They didn't have any money, and they spoke almost no English. But they had a passion and intensity that earned them the name Mad Dogs. So initially, the Mad Dogs surfed without using jet skis or rescue teams, the support that made big wave surfing possible. They paddled themselves into the waves on long, heavy boards called guns. They gotta crawl over those gnarly, giant, slippery boulders to almost lose their life, to get through the shore break, to get into the lineup, to paddle into these giant waves. I think it's unbelievable. That's surfer Darek Dorner from the 2016 documentary Mad Dogs, which also featured Freire himself. I didn't take anyone to film me. I just jumped in with my suit, my leash, and my gun. The Mad Dogs challenged the notion of what was possible in paddle out surfing. Freire describes one attempt at surfing a famous Hawaiian big wave called Jaws and the power of those waves. He remembers one that dragged him under. And I couldn't hold my breath any longer. I was in agony, begging for air. And then everything was suddenly calm. I made it to the surface and took a deep breath. I mean, I couldn't hold it any longer. Despite being a legend in the sport, Freire says he never made a living from surfing. Absolutely not. I was never able to make a real living from surfing. I can count on my fingers money that came from surfing. Freire joined the podcast Let's Surf just a few months ago. I really don't care about chasing the big one. I've already done a lot of that in my life. I just want to keep surfing and always have the chance to catch those perfect waves. Which he did till the very end. Marcio Freire was 47 years old. Grammy-winning icon Roberta Flack has retired from singing. She announced a devastating ALS diagnosis in November. It has taken away her ability to perform. But now she is unveiling a new way to share her art. More on Roberta Flack's new children's book, The Green Piano, tomorrow on All Things Considered. Listen on the radio or ask your smart speaker to play your NPR member station by name. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports tonight. The Celts will be at the Garden to play the New Orleans Pelicans. Start time is in just about an hour. Bruins are off until tomorrow night. Bruins coach Jim Montgomery will coach his first NHL All-Star game next month. Today, the league selected Montgomery to lead the Atlantic Division team in the match, which is February 4th in Sunrise, Florida. He has led Boston to the best record in the NHL this season. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 23rd. Semesteroff.com. And Davis Mom, taking care of your business from startup to sale. Learn more at davismom.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M.